Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Your Story, Free Your Life. My name is Amy Kocek, and I'm so excited to be back with you all after quite the break. And I'll explain that as we dive deeper into the episode. We are currently in Phoenix, Arizona. So in the in the last episode, I was in Vancouver, Washington, and loving my time there, loving my experiences. I really love the Portland, Vancouver area. And when it started hitting October, there were so many days where it was overcast and rainy and cold, which for me is the trifecta of depression. I don't do well in um, really overcast environments. I don't do well in the cold and I'm not really a rain girl. Now there are rainy seasons in Florida, but because it's offset with so much sunshine, it doesn't um, it doesn't impact me. But it reminded me of when I lived in the Midwest, when there was a whole lot of cloudiness and it's just sad. So I went through a huge period of time where I got incredibly homesick and just tired. So I decided to take a bit of a break and go home and visit St. Pete, see my friends, see my friends who are my family, and then um, flew back and that gave me a little bit extra motivation and a little bit more energy that I needed to continue my journey. And one of the things that I'm realizing about traveling as my, my trip kind of winds down is that traveling takes so much out of you. And I think this is the thing that so many people who are desiring to live a nomad lifestyle are desiring to travel. I think one of the things that I didn't realize was when you go to a new place, literally your entire equilibrium is thrown off. Like your routine, your schedule, even when you're going out and trying to find places, like I live for my GPS. I don't know how people traveled before GPS or MapQuest for that matter. Um, even to get to a coffee shop to work, it's like, when I get to the coffee shop, I got to figure out, okay, how busy is it going to be? Um, do they allow dogs? Um, is it, is it going to be a comfortable environment? Are there going to be too many people, you know, um, getting to the grocery store. And then of course, like figuring, you know, and then the fun part is figuring out the things that you can do, the activities you can do. Um, but then I also incorporate in the fact that I've been staying with people, I've been living in shared spaces. So you're with other people that you don't know. And it's just such, it, it throws off your entire lifestyle. And every time I go from one place to the next, it's like starting over again. So it can be incredibly exhausting. And it has taken a lot out of me. So when I went back to St. Pete and just like feeling like, ah, my home. Um, it definitely started to make me even more homesick, which is why um, I'm deciding to go back to St. Pete um, towards the end of November and settle in, which I want to do a whole other podcast on the revelation of home and belonging and um, getting to that point of really just feeling like I could settle, which took me a while to get to that point but I'm excited that I'm to that point. But even with traveling from Vancouver, and then I went from Vancouver to California, and I made two stops in California, 
and then I'm from California to Phoenix, and then I'll go from Phoenix to St. Pete, even just those like long distance drives. It doesn't matter how beautiful the scenery is. You know, like at first when I'm doing these like long distance drives, I'm like, God, this is amazing. Mountains and the scenery and the people. And it's like, you're just taking it all in. But once you get to a point where you are just exhausted, I don't care if I'm in front of the second wonder of the world. Like, I don't care how much money people pay to get to this location. If it's across the street, I don't want to see it. I want to go home. And I feel like I'm at, I'm at that space where, um, I'm just seeking a little bit of rest, like just true and genuine rest and my routine. So one of the things that I've been learning on this journey, and it kind of came as an epiphany when I left Vancouver, which was when I first went on this journey, I thought this is the beginning of a new chapter. This is going to be a whole new Amy. And I am starting something. That's what I really genuinely believed. And as I talked about last week, there's so many things that you can have in your mind and that you can plan, but the majority of the time, things never go to plan. In fact, sometimes they go the exact opposite of, of what your plan was. So I initially thought this was going to be the beginning of something, but what I have discovered is that this entire process has been a closing of a chapter so that I can walk into a new chapter of my life, resolving and healing and like truly stepping into my power and truly stepping into who I am. And I'll explain this a little bit further. I was, I was watching this show called Made. I was watching this show called Made on Netflix. And if you haven't seen it, especially if you're a woman, highly, highly recommend it. The main focus of this show is that it, the main character is a victim of emotional abuse. She's living with an alcoholic and he's very emotionally abusive to her. And she's living in this environment and struggling. So one night she leaves in the middle of the night after one of her um, boyfriend's episodes and she goes to a domestic violence shelter. And when she gets there, the woman who's intaking her, this, the main character says, I kind of feel like a fool here because I'm not like, I haven't been physically abused. Like there's no bruises on me. And the woman looks at her and she says, you realize that emotional abuse can be just as damaging as physical abu abuse. Your body can take that on as if you're being physically abused. And it was interesting how much the main character struggled to, how much she struggled to own the fact that she was a victim of a, of abuse and to own what had happened to her over her life. And it's like, as the show is continuing, you're starting to see this pattern of abuse because it didn't just happen in this relationship 
with her boyfriend that this was something that had been in her life from a young age, that that sort of treatment became familiar to her. So there was no title of abuse because that was normal. So in order for you to even identify something as abuse, you have to see it as something abnormal because the word abuse is a very strong word. So you have to see that how you are living and how you're being treated is really not the norm. But if that's all you ever know, then there's no vocabulary for it. And I was watching this show and I was getting so emotional because I thought about how many people leave an incredibly spiritually and emotionally abusive religious environment and and really have no domestic violence shelter to go to. And many times they don't even have vocabulary to describe what has been done to them, nor do they even know that what has been done to them is wrong because all the things that they've experienced have been under the umbrella of God. That's, that's powerful that all that they have taken in has been in their mind signed off by God, has been approved by God. And it's happened inside this church building where they've been told all their lives, this is a special place. Like God is here. Special things happen here. And many times if they're in very demonstrative environments, many times they might've seen people like have miraculous healing in their body, or they might've seen people cry or people get happy or people jump up and down because they're so happy in this environment. So to identify that environment, to identify that environment that they have been trained to believe is where good things happen and where God is, to experience abuse in that environment takes a lot to get to the point to even be able to label what that is and what that experience was. And it made me think about how lonely the journey is when you leave that environment. Because all you've ever known is that. There's this, um, there's this other movie. Um, it's called The Village. And it's, it's directed by M. Night Shyamalan. I don't know his last name. But um, it's such a fascinating movie because I believe everything about this movie parallels the religious system. And I'll speak from my experience, especially from a fundamental Christian cult. And I'm going to use that word. And I know that it's strong, but I think words matter and being able to define what happens in that environment and connecting it to the behavior of cults is a, an appropriate term for those environments. But this, this movie called the village there, it's a very small village and they have all these people living here. And it almost looks like, um, like they're pilgrims, you know, it's a very old style environment and they are, they're in this village 
And as the movie progresses, you find out that nobody leaves this village. And the reason that nobody leaves this village is because they've convinced the people in the village that outside of the boundaries of this village is a very scary monster. And this very scary monster wants to kill them. So if they leave the village, they leave the safety of the village and they open themselves up to the danger of the scary monster. And so this is a spoiler alert. If you want to watch the movie, don't listen to me after this, but you also need to listen to me after this to understand the point. But um, two of the main characters decide to travel outside of the boundaries of the village because somebody in the village gets hurt and they need access to some sort of medicine or something to help this individual. So based on that necessity, the main characters are like, we've got to leave this village. I'm the main character saying, I'm willing to face the monster because there's a need so I can, I, I'll face the monster. So they go out and they go past the confines of the boundaries of the village. And this really scary monster is like trying to attack them. And the climax of the movie is when you realize that the really scary monster is one of the leaders in the village who just dresses up at this as the scary monster. And then what you realize is once the main characters get past that revelation that there really isn't a scary monster and that the scary monster is really the per the people inside the village, once they get past the scary monster and they get to the walls of the village and they jump over the wall, what you then see is a modern day society. That this isn't this doesn't take place in the in the pioneer days. That this village exists in modern day. And then what you start to realize is that the leaders of this village decided that they didn't want to be a part of the modern day, that they had suffered too much. So they were going to create this subculture and they were going to create this village. But the only way to keep these people in the village was to convince them that anything outside of that was bad and scary and that there was only safety in there, even if staying in there meant that they would die. Like the leaders weren't willing to go outside and to get the medicine that was needed for the, the other villager. They were willing to let that villager die because being honest about what this village was about meant that it would break down all the control, all the manipulation and all the lies that had been built up to keep these people stifled in this environment. And I honestly believe that that is what happens in so many fundamentalist Christian cults is that what happens is, is that you create this environment in which you determine that this is the only safe place that in, in, in this church with these people, with the, with these leaders, that's the only way that you can remain safe. Because out there is the world, is the bad place with the bad people and the devil and the devil's workers and demons and sinners and disgusting, evil individuals who hate God and who are just in their homes. And you you take these, these, these words, these labels, and you make the outside 
of this controlled environment looks so scary and so bad that what happens is, is that the people in that system become dependent upon the system. Because now if, if this place is so scary and I don't have the power to overcome the scariness of this place and that this place is ruled by the devil, and of course the thing that we're scared of the most is the devil, then I have to stay here. But here's the caveat to that. When I stay here in this controlled religious environment, it doesn't matter what treatment I get in here because I'm trained that nothing that happens here in this controlled religious environment is as bad as what's happening in this bad and scary world. So in, in that environment, I truly believe that you have leaders who are given so much power and so much control because we are taught to believe that these leaders have direct access to God, especially the pastor. The pastor has direct access to God. So whatever the pastor is telling you and however he's communicating it to you, you can't question it because to question him means to question God. And that when, when you are taught that whatever the pastor is saying, it's for your good and however you're being treated, it's in love, then you have to receive it no matter what it is. Because to not receive it, to question it, to push back is termed as rebellion. And rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I mean, it takes us way back to the Puritan years, right? Of like Salem witch trials. Like to rebel, which means to disagree with anything, means that you are rebellious, which means that you are committing the sin of a witch. And specifically from a standpoint of a woman, that environment becomes even more strenuous because there's so many rules placed upon you. There's so many more boundaries placed upon you because most of these environments, the, the main leadership is males because in most of these environments, women in leadership is discouraged because women are supposed to be submissive. Women are to be silent in the church, even when it comes to women preaching on a platform. It's a rarity. And if it is, I believe that it is very controlled. So in this system, you can be judged. You can be nitpicked. You can be talked to in very um, demeaning ways. You can be taught portions of scripture from a very judgmental point of view. You can be told things that are, that will literally create insecurities within you. But none of that is challenged because in that environment to challenge is to sin. To disagree is to sin. And to obey and to receive without question, that is praised, that is honored, especially from the standpoint of being a woman. Shut up and do what you're told. I remember one time, I grew up in a church that 
when when the church service would start, there would be music. And music was a, a very large part of the church service. And there would be fast music and there would be slow music. And in that environment, demonstrative movements to the music, singing out loud, clapping, jumping up and down, swaying, just movement was encouraged. That's what a lot of people did. And I remember really enjoying that time. I really enjoyed, first of all, I really enjoyed music, still do, really enjoyed singing, still do. And there's something so powerful about singing music together. I mean, go to any concert. It doesn't even have to be spiritual music. When you're together with other people and you have music going and people are singing, there's something that just like connects. It's a very connecting environment. Music is so powerful. So when you put that within the confines of trying to connect to a higher power, which I still believe essentially is connecting to yourself, I do believe that very spiritual experiences can occur and people can get lost in the music. I mean, this is not just in the Christian movement. This is in so many other spiritual circles. It's not just characterized to the Christian movement. So I remember I started singing on the platform in the choir and on the praise team. And it was, I, I was young when I started. I was 15 when I started. And then when I was on the praise team, I was like, I think I was in my late teens or early 20s. So I'm young. And I enjoyed it so much. And I took it so seriously. And I was so sincere. Like it was such a personal experience for me. And I remember just like enjoying connecting. And I remember, I remember being pulled aside as a group. So I remember I started with the praise team. I remember being pulled aside. And I remember the rebuke that we received. And the rebuke was, your movements are too sexual. That how you're moving is an embarrassment. And it's it's distracting to the males in the audience. And your, your clothing, some of you, now I, I said this before, but we had to, um, as women, our dress code was very, very strict because everything that we were doing was supposed to be modesty and protecting our brethren, right? Because the way we were taught was your brethren can't help it. Like they're just going to, they're going to want to have sex with you. They're just going to lust. They can't help it. They can't like the minute they see a short skirt, oh, can't help it. Doesn't matter. And it's on you. If somebody sees the shadow of your breast and goes home and masturbates, that's your fault. If, if one of your brethren comes into church and he's just trying to focus on God and your skirt's too tight, that's your fault. And to carry the weight of that, as a, and I was hearing this as a teenager into early 20s, to carry the weight of that was difficult because it's like, I'm not just dressing for me. I'm, I have to dress to make sure that every man I come across is not attracted to my body. So I need to look as, 
I don't know, unattractive or straight up and down with zero curves, or I have to make sure plain face so that they, they're not attracted because they can't help it. And I remember the, the feedback was that our clothing were too tight, that it looked like we were wearing makeup, that it looked like we were up there for a show and that we were attracting men. And I remember just like being devastated. I remember being devastated and embarrassed because I remember thinking, but that, that wasn't my experience. Like that was a personal experience. I mean, we either believe this or we don't, that it's a personal experience. So that's a, that's an experience that I was having with the music and with the, with the singing and that there were appointed people in the audience who were now going to say what was appropriate and what was inappropriate, what was deemed godly and what was deemed ungodly, according to who, what, who, what, why are, why are you appointed as this? And why are you appointed to even make the statement that that is not of God or that God isn't pleased or that you're causing your brethren to fall or you're being a distraction? And I remember just being devastated and then getting really self-conscious about the way that I felt like I related to God. Because even when it came to prayer, the way that we prayed, it was very formulaic. It was very, um, it had to sound like this. It had to be at this time of the day. It needed to, you know, specifically in, in the religion I grew up in, you had to speak in tongues every day for this amount of time. That this was, this was a, that was to show that you were religious. So now all of my religious practices were judged and were put in this box and they had to look a certain way. So then I started to get insecure. First of all, completely insecure about my body and about what I wore. And every time walking into that environment, even walking outside of that environment, it was very much like the, the people who deemed themselves as the, the police of the church, who were now the ones, uh, they, apparently they appointed themselves close to God, that they were the ones who were the, yes, that, that's a godly woman. That's, that's what we, that's approved by God. And no, that's not approved by God. So then it became dressing and praying and performing for people because it wasn't about God. It was about these people and, and what they deemed as good or what they deemed as bad. I remember sitting in a meeting and it was for choir. And I remember they dismissed all the men and they kept the women. And a female leader came up and she had a binder. And she stood up in front of us and she said that 
the way that we were dressing was offensive to God, apparently. And that we were being inappropriate in our movements on the platform. And we were being inappropriate with the way that we dressed. And I remember she opened up this binder that she had put together and she had examples of clothing that were appropriate, that were deemed worthy. And once again, like when you spiritualize the way someone dresses or spiritualize the way that someone presents themselves, it's, it creates such a deep insecurity within, within yourself. So any sort of style or creativity that you have is now taken away from you and it becomes formula to what these controlling leaders believe, what they subjectively believe. And if you step outside of those boundaries, I've had so many examples of women in the church who have been pulled aside and have been demonized for what they have on their body, who have been told that how you're dressing is inappropriate and that how dare you, according to who? So when you're in that environment, so much of your life becomes dependent upon this building because it starts off small, right? Like when you're in that environment, you are being judged and nitpicked and not just from side conversations, messages. I remember we used to have, um, we used to have church camp every year. I hated it. I think I only went two times in my life. Worst two times ever. Hated that environment. Hated it so much. But I remember every time before church camp, the leader would get up and he would preach these messages on quote unquote modesty, which was just literally rebuking us for the types of clothes that we wore and how we were bringing the church shame and we were bringing God shame. And we were just out here trying to tempt men. And how dare we? And when we go there, we better wear the right things because we're representing God, which really meant we were representing the church or him or whatever. So it's like these consistent messages, right? Of just like tearing us down, specifically women, consistently hearing these messages of you're not good enough, how you're dressing isn't good enough, how you're presenting yourself, how you're moving isn't good enough. It's not good enough. And when you consistently tear a woman down or just tear an individual down, slowly but surely their self-confidence, their self-worth, the thing that allows them to stand on their own with confidence and move throughout the world, you slowly erode it. It is such a slow and calculated process because when you do that, you make them dependent on the system. So now if everything about me isn't good enough, down to the core of my soul, because now you're hearing messages every week that's talking about how God is not pleased with you. He's not pleased with the way you're living. You're not praying enough. You're not fasting enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. So it's like this slow eroding of all that's in you and you're not good enough. So when you do it enough, you become dependent upon the system. You become dependent because now if everything that I'm doing on my own is getting picked apart and judged. And now I am being, I am being um, singled out in this environment 
where you just, it, it's herd mentality. You want to look like everyone else. You want to act like every, you don't want to be singled out because if you're singled out and you're picked as somebody who's rebellious or somebody who doesn't follow the rules or somebody who's sinful or they're not sold out to Christ, then you will be shunned. Anyone that tries to do things differently, you will be shunned. Because if you don't look like me and you don't act like me, you don't look like what they're saying we need to look like and you don't act like what they're saying we need to look like and you're trying to do your own thing and you're trying to like demonstratively get into the music the way you want to, you're weird. You're not doing it right. God didn't say that. God doesn't want you to do that. So then we shun you. And when you see that enough, especially as a kid, you don't want that. You know, like, especially if you're only dependent upon this system, because in, in the system, you're discouraged from having worldly friends. You're doing all the, anything that's worldly is really anyone outside of the system. You're discouraged from reading worldly books and going to worldly schools. The highest honor is for you to go to Bible college. And as a woman, the highest honor is for you to go to Bible college and get somebody who wants to be a preacher and marry them. Because if you go to Bible college and get a degree, how are you going to use it? For what? Because you're certainly not going to start your own church. If you become a music minister at somebody else's church, you're just waiting until you can have a husband. Because if you're out here single as a music minister without a covering, what? So, so much then gets pushed back for you to depend solely on this system to figure out am i am i worthy enough am i am i christian enough do i look godly enough slowly that system erodes your ability to answer your own questions and really slowly erodes your system slowly erodes you from even asking questions anymore cuz questions are dangerous it's just like in that movie, questions are dangerous. The more questions that you ask, the more that you find out the truth, that maybe the thing that's on the outside that you're told to be scared of, maybe it's just, maybe it's just the leader who knows that in order to keep the church in operation, he needs bodies in the seats, paying tithes, paying money. And maybe, maybe not even that, maybe the belief is the more people he has in the seats, the more clout he gets, because the bigger your church, then obviously the better preacher you are, then the better leader you are. There's so much that goes into having that amount of power that's unhealthy, in my opinion. But when you're in that environment and you are you're being degraded and you're being judged and you're being criticized. But all of that is connected to a scripture and it's connected to a person who you've been taught has a special connection to God. Who are you to disagree with it? So now you start to think it's not just this leader telling it to me, then it must be God. Then God must think that then if this leader's telling me that when I'm moving in my skirt that's an inch above my knee and that's offensive, 
God who's offended. I've seen this happen so many times where leaders take the power that they have been granted and they use it in such a way to convince, which it doesn't take much convincing, but to convince people that they've been assigned by God to say whatever they want over the platform, one-on-one, in small group settings, and they get very emboldened. And a lot of times the messages are not messages of love. They are messages of criticism. They are messages of judgment. They are messages of control. And the whole time that this is being communicated, it's being communicated under the guise of love. I'm saying this because I love you. It's the same thing that an abuser does, right? An abuser will come in and whether it be with language or with a fist, will knock you down, will erode all of your self-worth, all of your confidence, and then they'll come back when you're battered and say, I did that because I love you. I love you so much, that's why I did that. And that was my experience. That was my experience. So many times in these small group settings, in in over the pulpit um, with leaders where they would say whatever they wanted to and they would speak in harsh language and they would sign God's name to it and it would wreck me, wreck me, make me question me, make me question who I was and make me question my intentions and make me question my sincerity until I was like, it will never be good at like it will never be good enough for God. Because these people were were saying this is what God says. This is what God wants. And from a child being taught that who am I to question that? You know. And even now when people give feedback, the thought is well, well it's not about people, it's about God. <sighs> I hear what you're saying, right? Sounds good. We even say it in church. But we, but the actions that occur in church do not match those mantras that we say to cover up abuse. And that's what it is. It is abuse. It is verbal abuse. It's emotional abuse. And it's spiritual abuse. It is people taking their own perceptions. It's people taking their own subjectivity. And it is teaching something to people as if it is a blanket message for everyone to take when everything about spirituality is personal and is one-on-one. And the minute you take it out of personal and the minute you take it out of one-on-one and you start teaching these blanket statements and you start giving these blanket um, admonishments and you start giving these blanket rebukes, then what happens is, is it stops being personal and it stops being you on a journey with God and it starts just being you taking whatever marching orders you're getting or taking whatever sort of shots and hits that you're getting from these leaders who have been trained. And I I don't want to identify the motives of any of these leaders or any of these individuals because I don't know. But what I do know is that this, this style of abuse and this style of control and manipulation is perpetuated and it is learned. 
It is historical. Most of the people who are taking these leadership positions have learned from the leader previous to them. So it is a learned system that just keeps getting repeated over and over and over again. And what happens is that the people who escape, the people who leave, the people who start to, I, they don't, and sometimes they don't even have a word for it. They just know there is something about this environment that is hurting me and not helping me anymore. I have lost myself in this environment. And that revelation gets different for everyone. Sometimes that revelation can just be something devastating happening to you. Sometimes it can be offense. Sometimes it can just be a, like you're waking up and saying, I feel beat down in this environment. Every time I come to this environment, I don't feel good about myself. I feel bad about myself. These people are controlling me. They're controlling how I think, how I live, how I respond to myself, my children, my spouse. This is not what I want my spiritual journey to look like. And everybody has a right to get to that point without being demonized. Because here's the thing, and this is where real abuse occurs. Real abuse occurs when you decide that that relationship or that environment doesn't serve you anymore, that it is hurting you and not helping you. Any abuser, when you come to that revelation, first will convince you that something is wrong with you. There would be no personal responsibility taken by the abuser. Why would there be? Because they don't see what they're doing as abuse. They have consistently put it back on you. So why would they own that? And secondly, they're acknowledging that when you leave, you will struggle. Because any abusive relationship is created as a dependence upon that person. Most people who are in abusive relationships have been isolated. Hello, Christian cults. It's very isolative because the thing that they teach you when you first come in is anyone who doesn't believe like this, they are bad people. Once again, I'm not trying to go to the rhetoric that they say. I'm trying to go to the actions that they take because I know what they say. We love everyone. Hate. What do they say? Hate the sin. Love the sinner. That's bullshit. I cannot love you and hate what you do. I can't. I, I don't believe those two coexist because if I don't, if I don't like what you're doing, that means that I believe, and I've said this before, that means that I believe I know a better way for you, which then puts me in a place of control and not love. Cause who am I to make that decision? Who am I to look at somebody's life and say, I know a better way. I know a better way for me. I know my better way. I can share it with you. And then you do what you want with it. Cause I'm not you and you're not me. So the, you are isolated. You're isolated by calling anything outside of the church and anything outside of what you believe the world, worldly people, worldly music, and all of those things are orchestrated by the devil. So these are bad people. And these people are going to hell. Once again, I'm not going back to the rhetoric that they say that who am I to put you in hell? Your teachings put them in hell. God is putting them in hell according to you. So why don't you just say what you really believe? Don't just, don't cover it. Don't cover it with the nice like wrapping paper. Say what it is. 
So you're isolated and you become dependent upon the system, which is really dependent upon the person, right? Just like in an abusive relationship. And they know that when you leave, you're going to struggle. They know that. And because in most abusive relationships, the point of that abuse is to tear you down. Even in, even in physically abusive relationships, the core of a physically abusive relationship is to mentally break you down to where you feel like you have nothing and you are nothing. And that the only way that you're something is with this abuse. So the minute that you decide to walk out, that's why there are support groups. That's why there's domestic abuse shelters. That's why there is specifically counselors that deal with abuse. But the problem with spiritual abuse, and this is something that I'm coming to realize, is that one, I believe that it is a largely unrecognized condition. Largely. It is ignored to such a large extent. And, and one of the major reasons is we haven't even been given the tools, those of us who suffer, we haven't even been given the tools or the knowledge to understand what was done to us. Because so many of us, when we walk out, struggle with guilt and shame and regret. And a lot of that guilt comes with the fact that we believe that we were bad people because that's what we were taught. If you walk out of here, you're a backslider. God is not pleased with you. If you're hurt by the church, you need to just get over it and forgive because everyone's been hurt. So you need to just stay here and deal with it because it's just, we're just people. So you're demonized for your decisions. You are, um, you are blamed. Rarely do you see when someone leaves the church and they voice their hurt, rarely do you see that church take that feedback into account and go back to leadership and say, what are we doing that we need to change? You blame the abused. It's the same thing with an abuser. If, if, a, if somebody leaves an abusive relationship, it, you can be for damn sure that that abuser doesn't go into a mirror and say, what did I do wrong? What can I change? No, it's, it's the abused. That's their problem. There's, there's no, there's no going back to the drawing board and saying, this is perpetually happening. This isn't a one-time thing. People are leaving consistent for as long as I was in church, people, groups of people would leave consistently. And there was a, I've never, and I've been in leadership for years. I've never sat in a meeting where we, we talk about, you know what, here's some of the things that are being said about the way that we conduct ourselves and the type of teaching that we're doing and the way that we treat people. How do we do better? There's none of that. Because you demonize the person who left. You stop talking to them. You stop being around them. Because if you're around them, it's like they, um, it's like they catch something, right? They have a virus, the virus of evil. So don't hang around them anymore because they're evil. So when a person leaves that abusive environment, they lose everything. Just like a lot of times an abuse victim, you lose your, the security of your home. A lot of times you lose your possessions. Sometimes you lose family members and friends. It's a literal start over. But in so many cases, there's advocacy groups for these people. 
But for people who leave spiritually abusive environments, I don't know. And if there are, it's not, it hasn't come into my realm. But where are, where are the, the recovery programs that we go to? Where are the, the shelters? Where are the, the specific counseling for somebody leaving a fundamentalist Christian cult? Because what is most precious to us is the ability to spiritually connect to ourselves and to a higher power. So when you believe that the way that you feel about yourself has been condoned by God, that the fact that you feel like you're not enough and the fact that you feel like you've made a mess of your life and that's what God is saying to you, there's nowhere else to go. That's a difficult thing to recover from. And so many people find themselves in this loop of consistent condemnation, even outside of that environment, because that's all they're used to. So even leaving that environment and receiving love and also understanding that when you leave that environment, you're going to the scary place. It's the same thing with that movie, The Village. When they left the boundaries of that, they had to face the thing that they were always told to be afraid of. So when you leave the church environment, you're going out into the world with people that you were told were evil. So in some cases, people will lean into that and then they'll believe, okay, so I'm around these evil people, so then I'm evil. And they'll spend years feeling guilty, feeling bad, feeling evil, because that's what they were taught. And then you feel as though because you're not in church, because you're not in a church building, that you've lost this connection with God. You don't want to go back to a church building because of the experience that you had and the fear and the PTSD that you still have. So now you feel like you can't have a relationship with God, which means that you cut off your entire spiritual life, which is so important in any individual's life. So it's like, you don't know how to heal that. You don't know how to restart that. You don't want to go back into a church. So then you go back to just feeling evil and empty. It is an intense, intense recovery process. And I believe that there is so few resources and so few advocates out there who are speaking up because that's another thing like in order for fundamentalist christian cults to maintain what they have and to keep leaders in those positions of abuse and power unchecked and held not there's no accountability and they're still doing what they're doing and they're still creating that system new people are coming in all the time and experiencing it all over again and you're taking something that's so precious and that is so amazing the spiritual the, the spiritual growth in any individual and you're distorting it and you are destroying people's spiritual lives but it's unchecked and it's perpetuated and it's like a it's a fucking incubator of abuse meanwhile the people who leave are shamed into silence because you don't, even though you're out of that environment, you don't, you don't speak up because in some cases speaking up is connected to people that you might still love. 
sometimes when you leave, your family is still there. So speaking up means you might disappoint your family. Sometimes leaving, you have been labeled. So anytime you open your mouth, people are going to label you and just say, well, that's just because you're evil. You're just bad. And that environment pushes people into a state of fear and they get quiet and they don't talk about it and they don't acknowledge. They don't, first of all, it's hard to even acknowledge the abuse that was done to you on your own, let alone acknowledge it on a more public platform. And I, I believe that there are so many people out there here listening to me now or just out there who feel incredibly alone, who are in the thick of the recovery process, who want and miss a spiritual connection but don't know how to reignite it outside of organized religion, which has already done its damage, who feel bad, who feel guilty. Some of them may have been abandoned by their community because church is a community. Doesn't matter how devastating or abusive that community is, sometimes you come to rely on a community. You lose everything. And after I after I watched that show, something happened inside of me. Because I thought about when I moved to St. Pete after leaving the church and I had my, I had my core, I had my, you know, handful of people that I held on to, but I, I felt so alone. I felt so alone. And I felt so lost. And it's just, it's similar, similar to an abusive relationship, right? Like, it's like when you walk away from that environment, even though that environment was wrong for you and you know that that environment was killing you, it's almost what was keeping you alive. So leaving it, because you become so dependent upon it, leaving it, feels disorienting it feels it feels overwhelming and then there's the difficulty of missing some things about that environment right just like you do a relationship cuz it was interesting even in this show like when she left like after she left the abusive relationship and reconnected back to him, it's like there was things about him that she loved and memories of good times that she had. So it's like those conflicting emotions of knowing like, ah, like he, he's a good guy. Like there's a lot of great qualities, but he's abusive. The overarching, um, the overarching theme is that he's still abusive. And it's the same thing with the church environment. It's not all bad, right? Like there's great memories that I have from that environment and great experiences and great people, but largely to go back 
It is pure abuse. And to, to heal from that is complicated and lonely and difficult. And especially when you incorporate still having people in that world that you're connected to and trying to maintain or hold on to that relationship, but also still trying to recover and stay true to yourself and be honest, knowing that your honesty is going to offend some people who that love you, it's a difficult process. And as I close this chapter, so much of what I'm closing is based in fear. And it's based in a version of myself that was always running, just always running and always afraid of my own voice and being willing to be vulnerable, but also pulling back in that vulnerability, which is a lot of like these <laughs> these spaces in my podcast, it's like, I'm in it and I'm vulnerable and I'm, let me give it to you. And then I'll get so scared and pull back. I still have dreams um, of myself in the church environment with certain leaders and people who have made a impact on my life and not all negative. You know, I can't, I cannot say that honestly. There has been some good, but there's also been some really not so good. But I'll have dreams of myself still in that environment, still trying to prove myself, still trying to, you know, convince them I'm good enough. Like, don't you see I'm good enough? So the closing of this chapter is the letting go of the version of myself that's afraid and that's always running. And that's willing to share pieces of my voice, but still running back and hiding. Because I feel like there's too many of us out here who are still suffering and who are still trying to recover. And they need the language of recovery. And they need the, the permission to free their story. And they need the encouragement to be honest with themselves and with others. And I, I want to do that as much as I can so that I can encourage you to do the same. And the, so much of this, of what I'm doing here with this podcast is going to evolve because so much of what I've been talking about since the, this is the fourth episode, every episode just like leans back into my spiritual recovery. And the, the opening of a new chapter is being vocal and as loud as I can be with this part of my life so that I can encourage others to be as loud as they can be. Because there's so many more people, they're leaving in droves, they're leaving these environments. And my fear is that they leave without the resources and without the encouragement and the support necessary so that they don't feel like they have to give up them, that they have to give up their spiritual, their spirituality, that they have to live lonely and in silence and in shame. Because 
because they don't have to. You don't have to. I don't know what the recovery process looks like. And I don't know what the, what the steps look like. I only know what I've done and what I'm still doing and how I'm still in it because I honestly believe that this is a lifetime journey because <sighs> it feels like it was a lifetime of abuse. And I know sometimes that's a hard word to swallow, but I think that's the first place to start is to acknowledge the level of what occurred in that environment, whatever that looks like for you. Because that's where it started with me. And I feel like that's where so many of my tears and my emotions were as I closed this chapter. It was the acknowledgement of what really occurred in that environment, what I allowed, what was done. And then the most difficult part was the ages that I was when this occurred and how much that environment is spiritually killing, annihilating children and teenagers and how much that sticks in you subconsciously. So as we move forward, like I said at the beginning, the very first episode, I don't know what this is and it will continue to evolve. One of the things I know is I want to incorporate more people into this conversation. I want to learn more about your recovery process, about what you're doing. I want to learn more about just abuse recovery in general. How can we apply this back to our situation so that we can be whole, so that we can heal truly, so that we can live spiritually full lives? Because it was a lie told to us that you cannot live a spiritual lie outside of a church building. That's a lie that you cannot live a spiritual life unless you read your Bible every day. That's a lie. That you cannot have a spiritual life if you don't pray every day or if you don't do all these spiritual practices. That's a lie. It's a lie. I believe that spirituality, the beauty of it is just like the beauty of being a human being is that you get to determine what that looks like for you. And I'll stand on that as my truth doesn't have to be your truth. It's my truth. So thank you for joining me on another episode of Free Your Story, Free Your Life. And I look forward to chatting with you guys again.